All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, you know that Donald Trump has uh, received a huge percentage of the evangelical vote. In fact, I talk about this on the show all the time. Back in 2016, he got 81% of the white evangelical vote, uh, and they had an astounding, record-breaking, unbelievable 85% voter turnout. So uh, they definitively decided the 2016 election. Uh, that is certainly part of the conversation we're going to have with Catherine Stewart, who joins us now, who's the author of The Power Worshippers, a book that has come out recently. And it connects Trump uh, and and the evangelical movement and Christian nationalism. And I want to understand about those connections better, and I want to understand the movement better. So, Catherine, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, no problem. So, uh, first of all, uh, as you write about in the book, uh, Donald Trump in his personal life appears to be the exact antithesis of what evangelical right-wing leaders have been um, uh, asking for in public life for as long as I've been alive. Um, in fact, if he was a Democrat, they might think that he's the Antichrist. Um, so wh why are they backing this guy that doesn't match anything they have ever said about morality? A lot of it has to do with judges. The movement derives a lot of its strategic direction from the right-wing legal advocacy, advocacy groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, Liberty Council. Look, to date, um, Trump has appointed something like 192 ju uh, justices to the federal judiciary. Um, uh, that's over 22% of the federal judiciary. Uh, so they know that um, they're advancing a lot of their agenda through the courts, and they know that by appointing, you know, getting behind someone like Trump, He's going to give them what they want on that level. Um, another reason is because uh, a lot of the funders of the movement, the sort of plutocratic funders of the movement, um, uh, have allied themselves with a kind of uh, pro uh, hyper conservative, almost libertarian wing of the Republican Party. And so they feel like he's going to enact economic policies that are favorable to their pocketbooks. But, you know, there's something else about Trump that appeals to this movement. He's a guy. He's sort of. At, he's he's more of an authoritarian leader. The movement isn't doesn't really broadly uh, support uh, modern democracy, the constitution as it was written, or sort of representative democracy. They seem to have very little respect for the two party system. So there's something in the sort of autocratic style, authoritarian style that Trump represents that's uh, that the, appeals to this movement. Yeah. So, uh, look, I'll probably be har harsher than you in this assessment. Uh, I, I don't know, you might not. <laughs> it's not normally what you get out of a host. But um, it, so now there's so many different angles to go here. Number one is to find out what their true intent is. Because they told us their intent through all these years was family values. Uh, oh. We really want to make sure... <laughs> keep families uh, together and loving and uh, devoted and etc and no improprieties and they were so concerned about bill clinton because of the immorality he brought into the oval office etc so now it's super obvious that that was a lie that, that they don't care about that at all not one smidge couldn't care less uh donald trump has had numerous mistresses they've been porn stars uh, he's uh, paid hush money to them uh, had sex with them while his wife was pregnant. Uh, I can go on and on and on. Uh, they, and then, 
Yeah, the NPs, I think they've completely blown their credibility on the idea that they support the family. I mean, they've sided with economic reactionaries that undermine the supports that families often need in order to be successful. And they've waged war on many of the health and, um, and social tools that family need to thrive, most visibly family planning. And as you mentioned on the uh, issue of integrity of personal leadership, I mean, there's not much to say. You just point to Trump and it's the definition of hypocrisy. Yeah, so then uh, that gets to the question of what do they actually care about? So they said morality, but it's definitive now, 100% proven that they don't care about morality at all, not not 1%. So uh, then what is it? Is it just that they think, uh, no, abortion is more important than personal family values or personal values at all, or any degree of morality, personal morality? No. Abortion and, and what other issues, or is that a front for their true intent? So, well, you know, when, leaders the are, when leaders of the movement are talking to the rank and file, or when they're talking to pastors, uh, conservative pastors, about the issues that they should communicate to their rank and file in order to get them to vote for the hyper conservative political candidates the movement favors, it's all abortion all the time. But when they're talking, to their uh, political allies and their funders, they're advocating for a wide range of, range of policy positions, economic policy, um, uh, social policy, and foreign policy. So this is really a political movement um, that sort of hits home the, the fact that it's not just about the so-called culture war issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. They're really, a lot of what they're advocating is about money, about how the they say the Bible favors low taxes for the rich or no taxes, how the Bible favors minimal regulation of government or no regulation, uh, no regulation of the uh, minimal regulation for the environment. So there it's, it's really, they really kind of want to shift the country in a different uh, direction in terms of our international alliances, in terms of our economic policy. They've already contributed to sort of hollowing out of the social safety net and the policies that they advocate have intensified economic inequality to the point that, as many sociologists and economists have uh, pointed out, we're really at kind of a record levels of uh, economic inequality in this country. And interestingly, that precisely is what makes it so much harder for families to thrive. Yeah, so Catherine, uh, and I get a distinction that you make from time to time uh, that's very important for the audience to understand. There's a difference between the followers and the leaders. So the followers probably believed uh, the stuff about morality uh, when it was used as a talking point. I don't know if they still believe it because there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that happens. Uh, they certainly, the followers, the actual people who vote, uh, and the overwhelming majority of these right-wing evangelicals believe that abortion is a massive issue. Um, and, and, and they believe a couple of other things. Um, but their leaders uh, use that to brainwash them. Um, and they're actually the most susceptible to being brainwashed. And here, uh, you know, I'm I'm agnostic. I don't. I think all the religions are obvious, obvious mythology. And I think that if I were a scam artist, uh, the first people I would target are people who believe religion because they'll believe anything. Um, they know that that if you can get people to vote on one or two issues, you can control their vote. And so they, you know, communicate to the rank and file. So when I was researching my book, I went to all these right wing. Um, policy meetings and gatherings and values voter summits. At the last one, Tony Perkins, who's the head of the sort of family research council, one of the big right-wing um, uh, policy groups, he gets up on stage with three enormous uh, um, 
baby cribs, you know, cribs filled with baby hats. And basically it's sort of a stunt and he's communicating to people, this is the only issue that matters. But we have to remember when Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, a majority of Republican uh, uh, Protestants supported it. Let's not forget that Ronald Reagan signed the most liberal abortion law in 1967. Even uh, Betty Ford hailed Roe v. Wade as a great, great decision. Um, and Barry Goldwater supported abortion law liberalization early in his career. But so what happened is that over time, leaders of the movement um, recognized a sort of earlier version of the movement, a sort of intellectual predecessor called the New Right, recognized that um, they needed an issue that was going to unite conservative Protestants, fundamentalists, and conservative Catholics, and some others. And they you know, went through a laundry list of um, sort of considered different uh, issues, and they sort of settled on abortion as an issue that could kind of make it work. And over time, pro-choice or nuanced voices were purged from the Republican Party. So what we're seeing today is a kind of almost like a new religion. It's almost like a pro-life religion because they know if they can get people to sign on to that one issue, they can control their vote. Yeah, and they don't actually care about life. I mean, I give you a, a dozens of examples, but uh, Sheriff Clark in Milwaukee let a woman who was delivering, uh, he wouldn't get her medical help. She was chained up and her, um, and her baby died in delivery. Not one Republican cared, not one religious leader cared. Uh, if you were pro-life, that would be, that's like, that's what you argued for your whole life. There's, the followers actually believe it, because that's the whole point of brainwashing and propaganda. The leaders don't believe any of it. They're total frauds. So now, then that goes to, what do the leaders actually want? Well, they want power, and believe it or not, access to public money. I mean, this is um, really obvious in the field. I'll just give you one example of education where some of these legal advocacy groups that I mentioned earlier have placed a case before the Supreme Court involving a school district in Montana. There's the uh, religiously motivated voucher advocates who want even more voucher funding than they're already getting. So America spends something like $500 billion every year on public K through 12. And these religiously motivated voucher advocates know that if they can uh, open the floodgates more, the money's gonna flow without end. So a lot of what they're, and right now it goes even further, eight federal agencies uh, under the Trump administration renegotiating how they can access public money to deliver services and uh, 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 essential services in uh, many instances and maintain a license to discriminate, uh, maintain discrimination in hiring. And if the money is delivered in certain ways, then they can actually even mandate that people attend church services if they're going to uh, receive those services or uh, can be proselytized to. So I think the act of role of like the demand for access to public money is a really underestimated part of this movement. And as we know, when some of that money flows into sort of religious, sort of conservative religious organizations, a certain amount of it sort of goes up the food chain into sort of right-wing policy groups and sort of the political um, infrastructure of the movement. I mean, the movement has uh, invested for decades in all the tools of modern political campaigns. They've invested in data, media, messaging, a really uh, substantial get-out-the-vote machine. 
And I think it also bears, you know, pointing out that, that in a country where 40 to 50 percent of people don't bother to turn out to vote or have their votes, you know, through gerrymandering and voter suppression, uh, they really just don't get their votes counted. You don't need a majority to win elections. All you need is a really committed and united and coherent minority. So last thing, as quickly as we can, Catherine, uh, these right-wing evangelicals, uh, they say, America, freedom, they're all about that. Uh, but do they really believe in democracy? The movement is uh, anti-democratic. It is, I think, anti-American to its core. They seem to have very little interest in the Constitution as it was written. And they're promoting a mythological history of our country in which all of our founders were supposedly conservative Bible thumpers, which is absolutely not true. Yes. So I'm sorry, one more follow-up. So a lot of the the top uh, right-wing billionaires that are funding this movement, are they religious zealots themselves, or is this all a trick from them, from their perspective, to just get lower taxes and deregulation? Well, many of them appear to be uh, as committed or more to those sort of far-right economic policies as they are to the positions in the so-called culture wars. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Okay. Catherine Stewart, thank you so much for joining us. It's called The Power Worshippers. Everybody check out the book and their connection to Trump is fascinating and scary. Because uh, if you wanted to have someone lead an anti-democratic movement, well, boy, it looks like they got the right guy. <laughs> so we're going to find out if it uh, further succeeds in 2020. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the conversation on the TYT Network. We've got a great guest for you now. Uh, her name is Zara Burton. She's the founder of Global Reporters for the Caribbean, and she's also the lead reporter for 18 North Investigations. Zara, it's been a long time. Welcome back to the Young Turks. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time and a pleasure, a pleasure. I mean, I think some of you viewers know the background that, you know, we both started Young Turks way back together at some point or another, and you've done a really fabulous job of making it grow. So it's really great to be back. Thank you. Uh, it's probably been over a decade since you've been on. Uh, I think so. Amazing. Yeah. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, now you're doing uh, great journalism. Uh, so tell us what 18 Degrees North is. Okay, so 18 Degrees North, the name, by the way, is the geographic coordinates of Jamaica. And so 18 Degrees North focuses on investigative journalism that is important to the Caribbean and of importance to the world, even though it comes from the Caribbean. And so we'll do a lot of stories based on political corruption. We'll do a lot of stories based on environmental degradation. We have stories that are related to um, for instance, the offshore companies being registered in some of the Caribbean islands, that's a huge business for certain individuals in the Caribbean. But then there's, of course, the corrupt aspect, whether it's Russians who are hiding their money there, that kind of thing. So we do a lot of stories that impact the world, but just happen to be here in the Caribbean. So, Zara, it's, it's hard enough to do uh, hard-hitting journalism in America, there's this mythology that, oh my God, America has this great free press. Uh, but in reality, in my opinion, politically, they basically work for the establishment. And uh, But there's wonderful journalists here. There's great journalists who have, have 
that have tremendous courage that do work uh, in places like Russia and China uh, where they're oppressed. So uh, since a lot of the audience is not familiar with uh, how the governments deal with the press in the Caribbean, how has 18 Degrees North uh, been received given that you guys do hard-hitting journalism and, and sometimes uh, investigate corruption? Normally governments don't like that. So what's been the reaction? Oh, well, our prime minister, the current one, he sued me. That was the reaction. I did a story on him being, um, well, his big, big, big house. And this big house, you really ask the question, how was it paid for, especially given the fact that he was basically a lifelong politician. And this house was millions of US dollars, supposedly valued at. And so the questions I raised were, were along the lines of, okay, where did he get this money? And because I raised those questions, I was sued and we had to go into mediation and it was essentially resolved on the confidential terms. But the truth is that I reserve the right to rebroadcast. The thing is up on the internet, um, on YouTube. And the station here, which is TVJ, when I submitted it for rebroadcasting, they actually decided against rebroadcasting it, even though we won the right to rebroadcast it. So, you know, I have some problems with press freedom because I think we even have a higher ranking than the United States does. But the truth is in the same way that you sometimes second guess your ranking, I second guess ours too. Yes, we have the ability to speak out. We do have that ability. But if you're looking at my experience where not only are you sued, but sometimes you're marginalized depending on the situation, it is dread. Okay, especially for an investigative journalist, it is dread. So press, yes, free overall, as long as you're not doing what I'm doing. <laughs> so same the world over, you know, you challenge power and, and you're going to have issues. Well, I, I love that you're challenging power. So I, I want to actually juxtapose it because you work for uh, the press here in America, including for Bloomberg News. Uh, but, but before we do that, uh, so where can people find out uh, more about 18 Degrees North? Where can they get your journalism if they want to see that story and others? Well, that story right now is up on YouTube. So anybody can go and just um, Google Andrew Honus's big host, 18 Degrees North. That investigation will come out. You can have a view of it and leave a comment or two and see the kind of journalism that we do. Now, in terms of the investigations newsletter, it's 18DN for 18 Degrees North, but it's 18DN.substack dot com. It's a newsletter. It's a paid subscription service. And by the way, the reason that we've gone into a paid subscription service is from a standpoint that when we did, for instance, the big house investigation immediately before we went to air, just the teaser alone, our sponsor bailed on us. And so the financial implications are also quite pertinent as well and harmful to investigative journalism. And so because we kind of wanted to tidy up this being beholden to, let us say, company interests or to political interests, it's not that we won't do business with them. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I would prefer a model, we would prefer a model whereby the individuals, the citizens, the residents, the diaspora, they, if they're interested in what it is that we're doing, they will support our journalism, the kind of journalism that we bring, which is independent journalism. Yeah. And, uh, and look, it's the same the world over in terms of uh, financial incentives, disincentives, and pressures. So you used to work at Bloomberg News. There was a story out about a week ago saying that they buried a story about 
Chinese leaders and their houses, literally their mansions, their uh, money, uh, because China said we'll kick out uh, Bloomberg News from the and Bloomberg from all of China. And uh, Bloomberg mainly makes his money from Bloomberg terminals and have a ton of money at stake. So they spiked the story. Um, and so, uh, but what's your experience in the uh, Caribbean overall, not just Jamaica, because you guys cover the whole Caribbean, uh, versus when you were here in the U.S. and you were an anchor for Bloomberg News? Uh I didn't have any controversial stories at Bloomberg News. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was more about being down on the uh, floor of the New York Stock Exchange for the most part, covering market moves. I think the only time when I had a producer knock me on the knuckles was when I remember reporting on, I believe it was... um, I can't remember the German company. Oh, gosh, why am I blanking on the name now? That took over the NICE. And I remember having to poll individuals what they thought of this German company taking over the NICE. And one Jewish woman said something to the effect of, you know, she can't believe, she's older, she can't believe they would allow somebody who was responsible for, or a German entity responsible for the Holocaust, Germany responsible for the Holocaust taking over the NICE. And I remember, I made it very clear, it wasn't the... The entity, but I remember that the producer for the show was kind of mad that I brought it up and said, you know, you really shouldn't bring that up. That was like maybe a long time ago or something to that effect. And but that was the only thing. So controversy was not something that was my MO at Bloomberg TV. I have to be honest about that. So that is not something that I had any experience with at all being in in television while at Bloomberg. What I can tell you is one of the things that really caused me to do this was when I saw Mr. Bloomberg running for president and there was an interview, I forget which outlet it was, but the point is that I was really surprised that he didn't promote the idea that his news organization should cover him independently, regardless of the situation for the betterment of the United States in terms of journalism coverage and that kind of thing. It was more like, you know, well, these reporters, they do need to kind of be careful and know that where their bread is buttered. And I I thought that was like, not cool. Yeah. Uh, So uh, how long have you been doing 18 degrees north now? 2013. Okay, wow. So it's been seven years. Uh, Do you remember the first uh, story you had that was controversial? Uh, The major story that I'm known for that was the most controversial was that one that I mentioned to you. It was about, and it was controversial, I believe, because I got sued for it. Um, I would say to you that I've done other stories, though, about property politicians being outstanding on their property taxes. I've done other stories as well about lottery scamming in Jamaica and how it's ripping off individuals, elderly couples or people in the United States and how we, some of us, there's a section of the society that believes that the lottery scamming, even though they're scamming individuals out of their life savings, that's considered to be reparations, money for slavery, which I totally disagree with. And there's a song right now, as a matter of fact, that has used my report on lottery scamming in their song, praising lottery scamming without my permission. So that's another drama that I have to deal with. But anyway, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, here's, I mean, look, uh, Zara has a spirit that cannot be broken. 
so if you're going to come for her, you better come correct. <laughs> so, uh, so all right. Uh, one more thing here as we're running short on time. Uh, how has uh, the different Caribbean uh, countries handled coronavirus? How's it going over there now? Well, I can tell you where I am right now here in Jamaica, there's a press conference going on as we speak. And that's the latest figure I think was just given of 364 cases. And it doesn't sound like a lot when it compared to the United States. But you also have to understand that we were doing pretty well by all standards, except for the fact that we weren't testing enough. And so the government here got called out on that issue of not testing enough. And so they've really started to ramp up testing. And so our cases essentially have gone up significantly since then. In terms of the rest of the Caribbean, you are seeing conversations now about when to reopen, unfortunately. And, and that's a good thing for the entire Caribbean, by the way. Unfortunately for us here in Jamaica, we're not at a conversation yet where we're talking about reopening, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Everybody check out 18 Degrees North. That's 18dn.substack.com. You got that right. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Uh, and everybody out there, always support great, fearless journalists. And Zara certainly is that, and so is 18 Degrees North. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.